Public CEO Report is a podcast that provides insights about the public sector and public policy for the benefit of decision makers and leaders powering our communities. I'm your host, writer Todd Smith, and today we're joined by Maurice Cheney, president of the California Association of Public Information Officials, or CAPIO, and the public information officer for the city of Roseville's Environmental Utilities Department. Maurice, welcome to the Public CEO Report. Ryder, thanks for having me. Well, we're certainly excited to have you here. You got a, a great background in communication, something near and dear to my heart, certainly, when it comes to local government. And I just want to talk to you a little bit about your background and then talk about CAPIO a bit so people are more familiar with that organization. Then we'll get into some more nuts and bolts around communications in today's local government world. So first of all, tell me a little bit about your career working in local government. Yeah, so it, it's kind of when I was preparing for this uh, interview today, I was kind of reflecting upon how many years I've actually been in this industry. And it spans nearly 21 years um, in public outreach, public education, public information. And so I started out as an intern for Sacramento County. That's how I got my way into this profession. Um, and I've worked in local government for the majority of my career, having spent a little bit of time in the private sector, working for a consulting firm, uh, working on projects throughout the state of California on uh, transportation-related projects, water-related projects with a public, particip public participation bent around it. So I got to travel uh, California uh, and, 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 and be in places and work on projects in places where probably I would have never gone to. So, But most of my career has been spent in local government in the Sacramento area, working for Sacramento County the city of Sacramento, and now currently with the city of Roseville, with uh, a strong concentration on public education, public outreach, and public information. Okay. That's uh, one of the great joys of my my work in local government is it gets to pull me to all corners of California. And yeah. um, so I'm sure you had that same experience, right? It's like you just, you something you, you get off the freeway and you're like, I've never been to this part of California before. Look at how awesome this is. Yeah. And let me tell you, Bishop, California, which I had never been to, I would definitely recommend going there. Uh, just a little town in, I think, Inyo Mono County area. Um, so, yeah, you get to see California treasures, which was really cool during that time. Yep. Yeah. A little bit of a Hulhauser experience of sorts. Absolutely. Uh, and tell me a little bit more about the current role that you have in Roseville. That's a city I hear a lot about. I hear a lot about their culture building and their kind of high quality management that comes out of there, spins off and goes to other organizations. And I'm familiar with like the IT, the guy that heads up IT over there, super smart guy with a really progressive IT department. Um, so anyways, I, I've heard a lot of good things out of Roseville. What's going on in Roseville and why are you there? Yeah, so the city of Roseville, we're a full service city. We're outside of the Sacramento area. Um, we're about, I think 140,000 people now, which if you look at the growth of the building that's happening in our Western portion of the town, um, it's bustling and booming. Um, so within the city of Roseville, as mentioned, we're a full service city. So everything is essentially under one roof with the exception of our gas utility, but electric utility and the services that I help communicate for, which is water, wastewater and solid waste. That's all under one roof, which gives Roseville a, a pretty competitive advantage in terms of sort of controlling our destiny. Um, so all the journal services, public safety, our library and park systems, they're all within the city of Roseville. And it's a really, really growing community. And what I love about working here is um, I get to communicate things related to water, wastewater and trash. Um, so every single day I get to talk trash, I get to talk crap and I get to talk water, which are incredibly important um, utility services. And I think we do a really good job managing it. So I've been here, golly, going on seven years now. 
um, and everything from drought communications to talking about changes that will be occurring with trash and recycling or thinking about ways in which we can use recycled water differently, knowing that we're gonna to continue to see dry conditions in the state of California. Um, it piques my interest personally, but to be able to communicate that outwardly is really awesome as well. Yeah, I, and I often, we, we have the opportunity to work with some solid waste, or excuse me, some uh, uh, wastewater um, providers, right? Sanitation yeah. sewer districts, and uh, as well as water agencies. But I always, you know, on the water agency side, I always remind people, I'm like, what's the value of, of land without water? And the answer is a big goose egg zero. So absolutely. water is absolutely essential and foundational. Clean water is frankly critical to the health of society. I mean, it makes a pandemic look like nothing if you have dirty water. Um, right. And then number two, or I should say unhealthy water, because it could be Anyways, uh, and then the uh, the flip side there is that sanitary sewer systems, I mean, the amount of disease that they've removed from our society by properly dealing with effluent, particularly given the density of our population in California. I mean, you know, it's just, it's a modern marvel. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Absolutely. And I think the, the vantage point that I'm looking at is like the sort of tying in the intersection between our utility services and the people that use it. And so that's why communication in, in, in the utility space is incredibly important, not only to showcase the value of it um, and the necessity of it, but then also um, to encourage people to reduce impacts because there are impacts that we do see with these services and that the services that people use. Yeah. Uh, and then one other thing that you mentioned that's just unique, so I want to pounce on it real quick, is yeah. uh, you said Roseville has an electric utility? Absolutely. So uh, sort of some of the foundational elements on how the city um, came to be was actually sewer service. Um, and then also water. We actually purchased a water company back in the 1900s, and that's how Roseville became to be because of the boom of the railroad system. We needed utility services. But alongside those utility services, we also have our own electric utility. So we're not um, beholden to any investor-owned utility services in the Roseville. Um, so our utility service for electric also is in-house, um, which provides a, a huge competitive advantage, particularly from an economic development standpoint, just because we can kind of control and operate our utility service when new business comes in. We can have um, the ability to talk with them about our different utility services and, and, and make it an opportunity that is worth their investment here in Roseville. So, and and I know this wasn't going to turn into the uh, utility discussion, but just to just to go into that a little bit further, and understand also that you don't necessarily cover this particular department in your work, but um, many cities in California have been forming uh, community choice aggregation services. Uh, so essentially, CCAs is the name for right. them, and and in those cases, the city's becoming the power provider, but they still retain the distribution side in using with one of the investor-owned utilities, either PG&E and Edison. So not that I want this to turn into the utility, uh, kind of the utility hour for discussion, but I just want to clarify a point real quick, which is a lot of cities have CCAs or community choice aggregation services where they're providing power through purchasing contracts, usually eco, eco more green energy, um, but they still contract with Edison or Edison and PG&E still provide the transmission services. Whereas in Roseville, if you have your own electric utility, does that mean you're not only either generating or purchasing your own power, but you're also um, managing all the transmission lines in the city too? Yeah, you have it correct. That's precisely the case. Wow. Okay. That's uh, that's impressive. That is a, a very interesting. So does that mean you're also, you guys operate in your own conditions for doing any power shutoffs or you get to choose to have power shutoffs or not? That I'm not, I do not know that part. Okay. 
All right. Sorry. Didn't mean to corner you on that. That's not your department, to be fair. So Yeah, no, it's all good. It's interesting. Um, tell me, right? What's that? It's interesting. It is. Well, it's, uh, it's a very empowering thing these days when you can't have certainty in your electric grid. But if you're a city that's providing a rock-solid electric grid, that in and of itself is a huge economic uh, advantage. So Absolutely. why did you get into public service? You know, it's one of those things where I kind of stumbled upon it. Uh, when I was uh, doing my undergrad work at UC Davis, I knew I wanted to do something in the communication realm. I didn't know what the heck that was. I thought perhaps I can go into uh, broadcast journalism. And I thought, you know what, you're good as your last show. So I ditched that idea. And then I took a class on organizational communication. I was like, you know what, I'm going to get my master's degree, um, go into an uh, organizational consulting where you kind of go in and sort of re-engineer uh, processes and communication uh, approaches. Uh, but then I was like, I don't want to get my master's degree. But along that time, I was looking for internship opportunities because I knew that was critically important if I wanted to start my career. So I think it was my junior year, um, the communications department sent out a listserv of, of jobs and I pounced on an opportunity through Sacramento County. I didn't know such a job existed in the government space. I thought when you think about publicity, you thought, you know, movie stars, um, and nothing in the government realm. But since then, I never looked back. And I've grown to love and appreciate public service um, because I think you get to to move the needle for the community and you get to do meaningful work where you directly see the benefits derived from the work that you do. And I think it is incredibly uh, more so in the, in the local government space. So I've worked county, big city, sort of mid-sized city now in Roseville. And what you put out uh, you get back uh, in, in return and you see sort of that that linkage between a really good government operation and the community that supports it. So every single day I get to do that here in Roseville. And while I don't live in Roseville, I, I've, a, I've grown to appreciate the service levels that we have and what we provide. And I get to sort of be part of that process. So it's it's really cool. Really, really cool. And what would you say is working well in local government, right? What do you, when you look out at the landscape, particularly from your vantage point as president of Capio, like what do you, what do you see that goes well? And I realize this is all in the context of coming off, hopefully the tail end of a, a pandemic, but. Uh, yeah, you know, I think there are many things going well. Um, I think from the sort of the perch view of where I live, which is, you know, government communications and engagement and public participation, I think you're starting to see, and I think you've seen it for quite some time, this level of community involvement and public participation where we are actively seeking feedback to further improve the conditions for our community, whether it be a new park, prioritizing funding, prioritizing uh, community desires pitted against funding opportunities, um, looking at necessary infrastructure projects and how the community can weigh in. So I think we've become incredibly more um, open and transparent and accountable. Um, we want to seek that input. But I think in addition to that, if you were to put sort of public engagement aside, um, I think through necessity, um, there, there is sort of this need for local control and, and, and local initiatives to bring about revenue. Um, so local measures, sales tax initiatives, which Roseville has been part of, um, investing in a robust economic development program because bringing in new business means greater opportunities for higher paying jobs and generation of revenue. Um, but I think at the end of the day, we're doing a really good job, especially during the pandemic and weathering sort of this economic storm. And I think we built ourselves to recover pretty quickly. Um, so when I think about government, um, we're here to set conditions necessary to thrive. And we're often competing against 
different things, whether it be like consumer spending habits, state funding that could be dried up, um, or any mandates that come with unfunded uh, uh, liabilities. And so I think as at the local government space, I think we see all those things um, and we're managing it at a local level, uh, both in terms of how we communicate to our customers um, and engaging them in input setting processes, but then also on the operation and revenue side, um, we're getting incredibly smart and keen on how to control our own destiny. Mm-hmm. The You talked about engagement and kind of being at the height of engagement. My general observation is uh, Americans have experienced more government in their lives in the last year than perhaps World War II. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, and anytime you do that, you can expect more engagement, positive or negative, right? But you're going to, I mean, certainly if there's a force that's affecting my life, I'm going to engage in that force, right? If my neighbor's driving me nuts, I'm going to engage with my neighbor. Yep. Um, uh, and similarly, if my neighbor brings me an apple pie and tells me I'm doing an awesome job and thank you so much and they're awesome, I'm going to want to engage with them too. It's just the nature of kind of action reaction. Yeah. So um, in that context, uh, or thinking about engagement, how do you, how do you actually talk about the difference between say engagement and communications where do you see a, a, a variance between those two things because that seems to be a a good discussion i have with folks at institute for local government and other professionals like yourself in the space of drawing a distinction between those two yeah i i, I think when i think of uh, communication i think about it well first and foremost right when we think about the communication model back in the day and it still is that today is that you know sender receiver feedback and I think now, simultaneously, uh, in the world that we're living in, when, in the digital world, uh, as it relates to social media, we're often playing both simultaneously. So the question is, is there a true difference between communication and engagement, knowing now that as a consumer of information, uh, I might be sending you information, but then I'm also engaging in a process at the same time. But I do think, think that there are distinct differences. Um, when I think about communication, um, it's often um, we want some type of call to action. Um, or we're trying to build awareness or change perception. Um, mm -hmm. So that's where, where communication comes in. It's sort of um, very awareness driven. Um, but oftentimes what we're doing is not only are we trying to send information to inform, educate, but we're also trying to engage them into a process. Um, and that's where the engagement comes in, where we're truly, genuinely, authentically um, trying to get feedback and ascertain from the customer what they truly want. And so we do that in Roseville all the time, right? We're, we're constantly sending out information on ways in which they can reduce their impacts to uh, their utility system or their environment. But when we go through a rate setting process, we share the information, the assumptions based on our rate setting process, and we want to hear candid feedback on what this means to the customer. And we actually use that feedback to help determine how we move forward with things, or at least allay any issues and concerns. So uh, when I think about engagement, it's you know, sending out information, but being very genuine about hearing the information to help create um, solutions for change. Yeah, and I, I would, uh, consistent with that viewpoint, I always kind of view the engagement side, meaning that when we do engage, there is some potential for the public to actually affect the outcome or change the outcome. Absolutely. Communicating could just be that we're just delivering bad news, right? Like it's a fait accompli, it's done. But with engagement, or there's some expectation, certainly from the public, like if I'm going to take the time to engage with you, I expect that you hear my words and will take them at least into consideration. There's a possibility 
that yep. policy X might change to policy Y, for example. So yeah, and we did that. You know, working for the city of Sacramento, I had the great opportunity of working on the Golden One Arena. So if you've been to the city of Sacramento uh, years ago, prior to uh, the arena coming on board, maybe three or four years ago, I can't remember now. Um, it was a flagging um, shopping center that was yeah. dying. Um, so we did an actual engagement process with stakeholders, residents on what they wanted to actually see. So we worked alongside Sacramento Kings to really determine um, the look and feel of the arena. So what you see today um, with the arena project and the open space and how it's green and sustainable, that was based on input that uh, the Kings and the city of Sacramento did because they truly wanted to make it a landmark that was uh, reflective of what the community values were. So I think that's truly an example of raising awareness and perception about the project, but then also garnering feedback that will be put to good use in, in the form of what the arena is today. Well, well, then I'll offer hats off to you as being a participant in that process for the team that delivered it. Having stayed at that Kempton Hotel and enjoyed that space, uh, it's really architecturally interesting and fun and yeah. it's a great it was a huge improvement so uh, you know bravo to the investors and the city and everybody involved in helping make that thing happen it's really it's a really cool space absolutely i agree okay now let's let's put on your capio hat so okay. you are president of capio right california association of public information officials um what is capio who who is in capio why does capio exist well, first and foremost, when I think about Capio, um, it brings like warm and fuzzies because I've been a part of this association for nearly 13 years. And having not, even if I weren't on the board, because um, there's a little built-in bias, uh, I would say the same thing. And so this year, actually 2021 marks 50 years of Capio's existence. And really when we think about Capio, um, as mentioned in, in, in our mission, it's truly about the notion of advancing public sector communicators. So we've grown significantly over the years. At, at the height of uh, our growth, we had over 800 uh, like-minded individuals, um, government sector communicators from all spans of government, um, just coming together to learn um, from one another. And I think that's sort of the secret sauce is about learning from one another, um, networking and trading ideas and perspectives um, and leaning into one another because sometimes being a government communicator um, whether we're a one-person shop or we have a team, it can get lonely because oftentimes people don't understand what the heck we do, right? I feel like sometimes yeah. I'm uh, Ross on Friends because no one knew what the heck he did. Yeah. And I sometimes feel that same way. Um, but I think in the end, what Capio is, it's, a, it's about um, creating this extension to talk shop, increase your knowledge base, and really to apply that in your everyday working life as a government communicator. So when we think about Capio, it's about enrichment opportunities so that we can become the greatest communicator possible for our, for our community, but then also elevate the, the profession of government sector communicators. And how did you guys deliver for your members during the pandemic? What did you have to do to adjust? I think the bigger question is how did we respond to 2020 because there was a convergence of a bunch of things including the pandemic, right? So there were a whole host of issues, but I will say this, I think we reacted fairly and quickly based on our infrastructure that we built. So we love the in-person, but we also knew that we needed to increase our uh, webinars. And so we did that as part of our 2017 strategic plan was to increase how we offered programs and services virtually. So we needed, we knew that we needed to do that during this time. So in 2020, 
Um, what we did, we shifted our focus from in-person to virtual. Obviously, we had to. But we made a concerted effort um, to offer webinars that spoke to how to reach audiences during the pandemic. And then we set up resources on our website. We had actually a COVID-19 page for members to use and apply for in their communities. And I think that's the another secret um, advantage of being part of Capio is that we source and curate content so that communities can apply it in their own, uh, in their own organizations and for their own communities. Um, so one of the things that we did, um, because you know we're a nonprofit and we're trying to cover our costs, what we did was, you know what, this was important information that we had to share. So we hosted five free webinars because we knew that we needed to get the research resources out for both uh, members and non-members, uh, mm -hmm. just given the criticality of the pandemic. But I think in addition to the pandemic, uh, we saw loud and clear that we needed to involve as an organization. And so one of the things that we started and we will continue to do is having discussions, having trainings around diversity and inclusion so that our members truly understand the gravity of what is going on and the importance of introducing processes to reduce barriers for information sharing. Um, so we do know that um, during this time, we, we, we need to be very, very deliberate and thoughtful on and reaching everyone in an inclusive way. And so that will be our charge moving forward in addition to sort of getting out of the pandemic is how do we have those discussions about diversity inclusion as well. So, and maybe it segues into the answer for this next question, but I, I guess, you know, any big plans for next year or anything big in the works you want to foreshadow for our audience or pique their interest with or whatnot? You know, so, so going back, I referenced our 2017 strategic plan, and I think that was probably one of the uh, most beneficial things that we did. I think as an organization, we're doing a lot of good stuff, right? We're we're a board of volunteers and we're doing our level best to get things done. But what the 2017 strategic plan allowed us to do was truly chart the course with feedback in mind from our membership on what we wanted to be and what we wanted to offer our, our members. So that plan um, included the rebrand that we did, um, which I think the identity truly fits with who we are, but it also introduced other things that we've implemented. Um, our podcasts, uh, the Capio Chirp. Um, we've introduced recently Mentorship Mondays and then also our advanced track. So those are three initiatives that were born out of um, the strategic plan that we started doing last year and onto this year. So those are three big initiatives that I think mm -hmm. that will carry us through the next several years. Every year we do a retreat. So we look back at our membership feedback um, on ways in which we can iterate and get better. So there's not any real grand plans. I think the grand plans have unveiled, revealed themselves over the last three or four years as a result of that strategic plan. But I think as we embark on a new strategic planning process, there are things in there that we do wanna focus on. And some of those things are partnerships. We can't do this work alone. So um, we actually have a partnership with the Association of California Water Agencies. Um, and, uh, and we're working on ways in which we can make that partnership stronger. But some of the things that we're working on is having joint opportunities so that when people get training through Aqua, the Association of California Water Agencies, they can also get credit for their APR should they choose to go after their APR. But in addition to that, our conference in the fall will include programming with the help of Aqua on things related to water uh, communications. So that's an example of our partnership. Um, and there are other partnerships that we're trying to strike with other like-minded associations. And so that's one of the things that I think that we're gonna be working on. 
Um, in addition, um, we worked on a sponsorship package because we know that our partners are important to us. It helps reduce that burden. So that's an example of looking at um, our operations, knowing where we want to be and coming up with strategies that help um, reduce that impact to our membership or offer greater uh, enrichment opportunities. So nothing super grand, but I think we're going to carry on with getting better um, with membership feedback in mind. Well, I, I like to remind everybody that if, if everything is grand, then nothing really is grand because grand has to stand apart, right? And you got to get some of the fundamental work done too every now and then. It can't always be grand plans and then uh, uh, off to the races and distracted by the next squirrel of a grand plan. Totally. Um, I will also just comment as a partner for Capio, uh, I appreciate Capio's flexibility this past year and looking to adjust things and recognize how to um, use partners most effectively as corporate supporters uh, and at the same sure. time respect the fact that corporate supporters also were having a changing landscape to adjust to as well. So Capio did a really good job adjusting that front and my compliments to you and uh, Amy and the entire board for their kind of, um, I guess, flexibility and innovation to make that happen. That was good stuff. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, so let's move on to communicating in 2020, 21, as you said, kind of a lot of things more than just a pandemic. So what are the big lessons learned as a communicator from 2020, whether it's through your work in Roseville or your work in Capio? I think there's a couple things and what I couch them as lesson learns or just maybe some reminders. I think either way it goes is there, there are some things in there that provided a true reflection point. I think first and foremost, uh, these types of moments, moments that happened in 2020 and some remnants that are still occurring now, I think as PIOs and government communicators, this is what we've been trained to do. And I think with that training, uh, what we found is there's this level of resiliency. I think being incredibly flexible and agile and, and as communicators thinking 10 steps ahead, which during COVID was hard because there's a sort of back and forth on managing the pandemic and trying to communicate some things that happened that couldn't happen. Um, sort of this back and forth that that uh, that has occurred. But I think in ter in terms of the mental preparedness, um, beyond that, I think it's having a built-in infrastructure of communication, right? Uh, you you can't deliver, you can't be both strategic and implement without having an audience to share that call to action. So I think that's vitally important as we continue to do the clinical work each day, that builds up to moments like these, where we can actually execute a strategic approach and implementable tactics with an audience in mind. And I think that's what we've been able to do in Roseville. Our built-in audiences, our channels are there. Um, so we were able to use those channels and flex that muscle, if you will, um, during these times. I think in addition to that is having an adaptable communication strategy. I think that we've learned that uh, in these times, flexibility in your communication plans ensures you can keep pace with what's happening in the world. Um, so you might not have to, you might have to have paused on social media posts cancel a pitching strategy or holding off on a, uh, a campaign altogether, um, just so that you were not seen as tone deaf. And having mm -hmm. been on several uh, Facebook groups, people were talking about, are you posting about this? Are you pausing this? Are you gonna be part of the civil unrest discussion or not and why? So those things were happening um, daily on these, on these different Facebook groups that I've been a part of. And I think that just shows the level of um, flexibility as communicators we have to have. And I hate to use this word, but pivoting during 2020 and 2021 is sort of sort of the soup du jour. Um, and I think one other thing, a couple things as well is like, when we think about virtual, virtual isn't a replacement for in-person, but I think that we've there's some lessons that we can learn from how do we incorporate virtual into our communication strategy, particularly mm -hmm. if people are continuing to use YouTube, um, Facebook to get their information, 
I think we need to build in opportunities where we utilize those video streaming platforms. Um, and then I think finally, what I would say is mental health matters. Um, and in a moment where all of our lives have been disrupted, many of us working remotely, sometimes in isolation because we live alone, um, or just being um, removed from our work networks, um, that we, ha we have to put mental health first. Being a public relations practitioner inherently is stressful to begin with. So it's always good to make that pause um, from work and staying connected, whether it be phone calls with friends or even coworkers, instant messaging and video conferencing. So spending time, taking that time daily, uh, if you can, uh, to focus in on your mental health. Yeah, yeah. That uh, I particularly on that last point. I mean, I heard some really good. Uh, so city manager Malibu a couple of years ago after the fires, she had been slogging through with her team on that. And I think one of the big realization moments was just the mental toll on her own team to yeah. be able to sustain hour upon hour upon hour and day upon day of the of the kind of crisis was just taxing. Um, and actually. Uh, to credit to Chirp, I listened, I've listened now to both your first and your second podcast you guys have produced. Uh, and then your first podcast, the, I think it was the deputy director for the OES for California was discussing yeah, mental health for, uh, communicators and how to kind of plan ahead, not only to have distribution channels and communications, but to have that support circle of people who can jump in to help you out and give you a little bit of mental relief so you can get some space before you come back at it. Yep. Um, so totally, totally hear you on that point. It's well, well raised, well raised. Any other big kind of tactical trends you see happening in 2021, right? Is, is TikTok going to take over as the next social media platform? And if so, is it going to displace Twitter? Is uh, Instagram going to supplant Facebook? Is, is Nextdoor going to continue to just uh, explode under the feet of agencies, whether they want to have a public agency account or not? What, what uh, any other thoughts on some of those things? Yeah, I think there, there's a couple things. So you hit on TikTok, so I'll talk about that first. And I think that, and, and I will admit, I am addicted to TikTok. So as a consumer of information, I see value in how uh, people approach TikTok. Um, and even my daughter and kids who, my daughter and son who um, are both uh, 13 and almost 11, uh, gravitate towards that, much like us 40-year-olds do as well. But I will say this, is that raw and lightly produced videos are a thing. They always have been. I remember years ago during the drought, um, we got a rush of rain uh, uh, and, and so our rivers were just rushing. So one of our um, coworkers sent in a video um, of water rushing down the Upper American River. We posted that on Facebook, got 14,000 views quickly. So it's always been a thing, but I think the refinement of those raw and lightly produced videos and sort of the pervasiveness um, is, is increasing. And so what we need to do in the government space is finding ways of introducing that informal and casual content. And I think we can do it while we can't go overboard like some private brands. I think we can still introduce a level of fun and funny. In fact, we're doing that now um, with a campaign called Waterwise Wilma, where this 10 year old girl is giving unsolicited tips in a TikTok manner on water savings. So that's an example of that. I think from a messaging standpoint, um, we need to start, and I think we have been, messaging uh, organizations at, with, with social purposes in mind. And I think as government, as government entities, we are inherently in the business to improve our communities. So as part of your content strategy, if you're not doing this already, it should reflect some of those values of health, the environment, and the community, which many of the things that we work on, whether it be a utility infrastructure project, um, planning a new park, going through a general plan update, all those values are sort of exuded in that. 
but how do you create content that will pique people's interest and create that emotional response? So messaging your organization with social purpose. Um, and I think too, is like, we need to continue to meet people where they are. And although people like us, government communicators or government workers generally are migrating back to the office, will we do that full time? Probably not. So there'll be this hybrid manner or there'll be private sector companies that aren't going back at all. So we need to be mindful of the disappearing commuting hours, but how we can find ways of interacting and engaging with those same customers. So while content consumption habits will continue to change, um, I think last year Nielsen said that while people were not commuting, they still were streaming radio, they were still were listening to music, they were still uh, listening to local news. So if you have a budget to do advertising, that would be your beneficial way of getting your message there. Or if you need to pitch to the local news, people continue to still watch local news. Yeah. And then two other things, podcasts, podcasts, podcasts is the thing, which I didn't realize. My 11, my almost 11-year-old daughter um, gave me the side eye when I was talking to a graphic designer about if podcasts were still relevant. And apparently to 11-year-old, they are. And <laughs> apparently to the rest of the world, they are as well. So social media platforms like Clubhouse, which is sort of this blending of your 90s voice chat rooms and podcasts are becoming a thing. So how can we introduce ourselves to places like Clubhouse or create a podcast series that has enough weight um, and has enough um, content and emotional response to drive people to listen? And then the last thing I will say, because this is near and dear to my heart, is like, how do we do, uh, re, uh, introduce um, chat botting? Um, and virtual reality, because it's becoming a thing in Roseville, we're actually working on a virtual reality of our surface water treatment plant. Not because of COVID, part of COVID, but also because we can't have people at our surface water treatment plant. So can people put on goggles and have this experience as if they were there? Um, so that is something that we're investing in currently now. And I think um, as time goes on, people will also see some of those same advantages and want to do that in their own agency as well. Why is chatbot so near and dear to your heart? And I say that in full support. Like I'm actually surprised more public agencies don't use some sort of chatbot concierge experience to yeah. engage their public. Because if somebody if somebody's showing up at your agency website, like that's a that's already a, a an elite highly engaged person. Because yes. you know, I mean, there's a small percentage of people that actually come to the website for the agency, right? It's a right. smaller percentage than who see you on Facebook. So right. if they come to the website. That means they've probably clicked on something to get there, which means they're already engaged. And now here they are at the website and perhaps there's like 4,000 links for them to go to, or they could have a chatbot experience combined with an actual human being sitting behind it somewhere who could engage them quickly. So having laid out the story, like what, why, why is it personal to you? Have you had experience with that? And what are your general thoughts? Yeah. So, so on a government space level, I've just been reading articles about it and there's a lot of agencies, especially during COVID where they use chatbots to sort of be that first line to help get people to where they are. So in that regard, it can actually be a good thing in terms of reducing call times, wait times, um, and staff time, because you sort of self-serve yourself to get to where you need to be. Certainly there are some good ones and some bad ones and there are chatbots aren't created equal. So there's some really bad ones that can be frustrating. But as a consumer of information, um, and also as uh, a consumer, um, I use chatbots all the time. I mean, Bank of America has a really good one where I can chat with my Bank of America app to determine insights on my spending, uh, to determine um, you know some of my spending habits related to anything related to my Bank of America card, but then also Amazon does that as well. But I can see that in the utility space as well, 
Um, can you tell me how much my last bill was? How much water did I use? Um, I'm thinking sort of futuristically, but that's mm -hmm. sort of what we're coming down to because frankly, um, it helps with um, budgets internally, but it creates a better um, customer service centric uh, opportunity. Because frankly, I don't know about you, but if I have to get on the phone and talk to someone live, uh, I hate it. Um, but if I can do that on my own, on my own time, um, when it comes to mind and get to a resolution without even interacting with someone, I think that's where we want to be. Uh, that's where private sector companies are. And I think government should follow suit. So to be clear, you hate getting on the phone for customer service, but you love getting on the phone to your significant others and family, correct? Absolutely. Okay. That's, so that's what you heard, and that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so let's talk a little bit just broadly speaking. Obviously, you and I are both biased in this space because we live and breathe communications, but like, why should public agencies invest in communications? Yeah, when I thought about this question, uh, I, I I always like to, if anyone knows me, I like quotes. So there, there's a quote from Ed, Edward Bernays, who is sort of the godfather of, one of the godfathers of public relations. So in his book, he says this, um, now public opinion, quote unquote, stood out as a force that must be managed and not through clever guesswork by experts trained to do that all important job. Um, so we live in a world today um, where people demand a level of transparency, um, understanding, awareness. So at a base layer, public relations, marketing, outreach, whatever you want to call it, is, is incredibly mission critical for most agencies because it allows us to reach our audience proactively, um, build a level of awareness, um, position the organization to positively inform, educate, and engage all the time. And, and I stress all the time because as we all know, public relations is not a one and done thing. Um, and I think as important, um, it's it's about being very deliberate and intentional and providing information at the right time, the right place, and with relevance. And having a built-out communication program, whether you hire someone or use an outside consultant, um, it helps to sort of defend against certain things that might arise over time. Um, so it's, it's very clinical and pres prescriptive to sort of thwart against um, things that might happen, but then it also allows you to build community connections in a way that supports your overall vision and mission and the value system that you have. Um, I'm biased, you're biased, but we also understand the notion when you build those relationships, when it comes time to ask for a rate adjustment or when it comes time um, to ask for something, you have sort of the, those pennies in the bank that you can cash in on. And, Communication, while it's not the silver bullet, um, it helps towards that end goal of creating those relationships with your target audience. Yeah, uh, and I guess a couple of points I'd just state to reiterate what you're saying. Number one, um, it is for a lot of agencies, you are building an asset that maybe you don't really appreciate until you do, like until like the crisis yeah. happens and then you're like, oh my God, I have an ability to actually communicate with people. This is amazing. Yeah. Thank, thank God. Maurice has been doing his job for the last umpteen years, so we have this capacity to get it done. Um, and so I think that quiet asset sitting there is, um, you know, it's just sometimes hard to appreciate that when you're staring down a budget or trying to figure out what you're going to go invest in next when it comes to priorities for the for the organization and for the community right. in general. Um, the second thing I would observe is that there's so um, such a diminished level of trust in our society in general and so many of the institutions across the board. In my opinion, some of that uh, – some of that distrust has been earned well, frankly, by some of the antics and, and activities. But regardless, it is what it is. Uh, local government still retains the mantle of being one of the most trusted forms of government. Partly, I think that's because 
uh, our public can see us, uh, see us, see elected officials, see the city manager, not really us, you and I, but the, particularly important for them to see the elected officials and leaders of organizations. And of course, when right. they do see you at the, you know, at the local store or out at a community event, like it's, they can put a face to government and it means something, right? As opposed to this faceless entity that is the federal government that they don't generally trust or may not like or what have you. It just seems so distant and far away. Um, and that, you know, kind of communications as a cornerstone of building trust is fundamentally there. I think we all recognize this in our personal relationships. I know yes. if I didn't communicate very well with my wife, she wouldn't trust me very much. Like, <laughs> you got to be a good communicator. Um, and so it also makes sense then that as agencies, if we need to communi- we need to be communicating transparency, proactively getting our information out there, making sure facts are out there before misinformation spreads around. Um, just basic blocking and tackling are so fundamental to that trust building exercise and trust just like having that kind of asset of a good communication skill, having that trust repository is hugely valuable when things come up like, oh, we stubbed our toe and made a mistake, or right. oh, we're you know we're gonna we have this un- unfunded huge liability coming down from the state, we're gonna have to pay for it somehow. Roseville, can you trust us to with some more of your hard-earned money to help make some of these things happen? Um, those those things are just hugely valuable and really important for agencies to be able to have at their fingertips. Amen. I, I- Preach, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, why should agencies have and follow a clear brand? Talk about a little bit about branding and identity for our public agencies, too. And I feel like Roseville actually spent some effort thinking about this and, and being consistent. Yeah, yeah. Um, we actually, I think our brand is fairly strong. We went through sort of a refresh of our brand a couple years ago. Um, but I think what you find with our brand, there's a level of consistency with our identity. Um, But I will say this, branding is uh, not only necessary, but it is mission critical. Because at the end of the day, while government isn't necessarily selling a product, we have services um, that we want to promote. What we're trying to do, and I think you hit it um, in in your response, um, is to to maintain a level of trust, satisfaction for services we provide, and communicate the value of the organization. And that's the why behind branding and, and why positioning is so vitally important. But when I think about it, um, you know, I talked about our look and feel. It's pretty consistent. Um, It it goes beyond that. I think every action, every interaction, and the information we send out is an image we are trying to portray um, or the reputation uh, we are trying to distinctly set us apart from anything else. Um, So when I think of branding, I don't think of it as sort of these sort of disparate uh, ingredients. Um, I think it's a recipe. And I think what it comes down to um, if I were to sort of distill it down without uh, messing it all up, but it comes down to some of the key ingredients being um, communication, um, obviously look and feel, the tone that you're trying to resonate customers with, and value messaging. That's incredibly important. You know, We're in a, in a monopoly, but we want to showcase the value of what we're doing each and every day for our customers. I think a level of customer service, and that's not only response times, but listening to our customer, actually listening and taking into account their their opinions and their perspective. Um, and that customer service also is sort of um, introduced and embodied in how we treat our our internal customers, our employees. Um, and then there's this level of collaboration. We talked about it before with engagement, but hearing all points of view before deciding some type of course. And as mentioned before, all, when I said all the time before, and I mean it, there's this level of consistency. It's not sort of this one and done. And the interplay among all of them um, truly uh, brings about a brand. We all know that when we think about branding, um, it's the perception that people have about us. But I think we can help 
dictate that perception by using all those ingredients to form this recipe. And I think by doing that, um, you're able to instill a level of trust and understanding with your customers. Um, customer satisfaction is incredibly high. And, and not to be braggart by any means is um, our utility service, the services that we provide here in Roseville, and I think even our general services are upwards in the 98 percentile. Um, and I think all those different things that we've been able to achieve, and even on social media, people will say, Roseville keeps us informed. And that is our goal. That's part of our brand is we want to let customers know every step of the way what we're doing, whether it be a utility project, a park project, anything you can think about. We want them to know that they're part of the process and being part of the process is being very communicative with them. Um, so branding, it's not it's it's a, it's a buzzword, but there's a lot into why a brand is successful or positively positioned and all those things I just described, I think anyway, um, sort of lead to a positive brand identity. Yeah, I wholly agree, right? And and I think uh, for the those not directly connected to the communications world out there, I, we draw a distinction between, between identity and brand, right? Yep. Not that the uh, like the one is a part of the other. So your identity is that visual element that makes you think of the city of Roseville, for example. Yeah. The brand is the reputation. What do you what emotions does it does it suggest to you? Oh, they're super transparent. Oh, I love those guys. They make sure my water's clean. Oh, they always seem to be very innovative over there. Uh, or, you know, if it's a negative, like, oh, and every time I talk to them, I can never get yeah. a hold of customer support or my water bill seems really high or they never seem to stream anything and tell me what the hell's going on. You know, I mean, like that, that, that those positive and negative perceptions are what build into that brand experience that people have. And then that permeates into the reputation. And I, I like to remind, particularly city managers um, and councils that, um, you know, when you think about the culture of an organization and the kind of culture you're engendering, like that, that trickles all the way through the organization, right? And that trickles out to your officers in the streets doing their work and the the public works guys and gals that are in, you know, in the streets pulling out manholes and interacting with the public or answering questions or or what have you. Um, and it's those, particularly those one-on-one -on -one experiences between yep. the public and that public servant that's out there doing that work that can really cement a reputation, right? It's like, Oh, Bob, that's the guy that that cuts my tr that's part of the tree trimming crew. And he's a super cool guy. And he bought me that. He remembered that one time when I mentioned something about my daughter's birthday and they want to do so X, Y and Z. Right. Or uh, somebody has a great customer service experience where they call into City Hall. They actually talk to a friendly person and that person's like, oh, I can transfer you. And they you know get right to the yeah. director of Department X. Like those kinds of things are just immensely powerful, making those yeah. one those one at a time fundamental kind of changes to the impact of reputation that are really important. And we see that all the time with our solid waste truck drivers. I mean, people absolutely love garbage truck drivers um, and they make it a point to say hi and they wave. And depending on uh, if they have time or not, they will stop and give a kid a little Trotsky um, to say, hey, I appreciate you. So that all leads to a positive brand and our employees are passionate about doing a good job. So you see it both internally, and externally. Um, it's pretty amazing to watch, actually. Um all right, and since I have you here, I have to ask, like, what do you see as kind of, let's just talk a little bit about social media as we get towards the end here, but um, what, do, what do you see as kind of where social media is today, its impact on organizations? And I know this is a huge, broad question. Like, what do you see as either fading away, becoming less important, and which ones are ascendant in the social media sphere? Well, as we all know, sort of the base layer, um, when we think about social media, it allows us to interact on a human level and really humanize the organization. And when we think about big bad government, 
that's part of our charge is to showcase that and remind people that there are actually people who work on their on the community's behalf. Um, I think, you know, Facebook is here to stay, um, even despite some of the issues that they had as it relates to the the, the propensity to um, uh, deliver fake news, not necessarily Facebook, but just the uh, proliferation of fake news that has occurred on their platform. But I do think that they're here to stay. Um, and for us, as part of our communication strategy, there is a stronghold on um, social media um, just because it provides an avenue for greater engagement and customer service. Um, there are times on our social media platforms where we're just sending information from a customer service standpoint and sending it to customer service just because that's the only way in which the customers know how to contact us. Um, as mentioned, we think about content diversity. I think that's incredibly important. So how do you go from sort of what we've seen to sort of the new approaches based on what we're seeing on TikTok and how do you capitalize on how they're producing content, how people on TikTok are producing content and how we can take some of those attributes and apply it to government. Um, you know, news, news media is still important, but what we're finding is, you know, one in five adults say they often get their news from social media. So with that in mind, that's going to increase. We need to have a sound social media strategy moving forward. And I also will say this, to the extent that you can play, pay to play within the social media realm, you have to do that. Um, our social media channels, even when we pay, we're still seeing a degradation in the amount of engagement that we're, we're used to seeing. Mm. Uh, and even more so on the organic level, we're not seeing the same level of engagement. So it's incredibly important to still have a social media strategy if you compare that with some paid but then what's also critical, right, when we think about the multi-layered approach, in addition to having a strong social media uh, platform, if you can invest in email communications, because that seems to be the king of the day, and also direct mail, all those together, right, as we know, the peso model, paid, earned, social, organic, or owned, rather, um, all those come together, um, and you can't focus on any one of them, because your community is diverse. How people receive information is diverse who we're communicating to is pretty much everyone in our service level, in our service area. So that's that's a diverse amount of people. So you have to have a multi-layer approach that has social media in mind. Um, and I think we have to introduce pay to the extent that we can. I know that budgets are often, um, don't include uh, advertising, but if you can, you know, um, take out, you know, $500 in a fiscal year to help go towards social media, um, that's better than nothing, I would say. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you you got to have a content distribution strategy. It can't all just be content because without distribution, you can have the best content in the world, but without distribution, you won't have impact. And that's a constant rule we talk about with all of our clients about that that matrix of trying to have a positive impact on what you're communicating and having it resonate with the public. So Absolutely. I also appreciate your raising the point about email. I think my uh, my Gen Zers and and millennials on my team get a little tired of a Gen X writer constantly pounding the table on email. But the reality is email still remains the killer app. It's how all of us triage our work throughout the day. It's, you know, we live and breathe inside of our inbox. Yes, we have news feeds and other things and social media feeds. But I mean, most of the social media platforms you used to have to sign up with, you had to have an email address in order to even sign up with them in the first place, which kind yeah. of tells you something about the prevalence of email out there. Yeah. So, and text messaging. I, w I totally forgot about that. That's yeah. Also so I, that was going to be my other point is like the, the the other one that is now just an, you have to have in lieu of an email address is at least a cell phone text number or something that can receive an SMS. 
Um, and again, very powerful platform, very powerful tool, hard to get some of those things. People are seen more willing to share up an email address and they're more yeah. used to getting that information. Like if they register with your utility system to pay bills online, they usually register with an email address to get their billing information set. Yep. Um, it's, I'm guessing they don't have to require getting a cell phone number in there to get a text message too. Although I'm sure you offer the space to capture that if they're so inclined to share it. We do, and, and, and the email system that we use, uh, people can sign up either by email or text, and how we distribute many of our newsletters is both. Um, so depending on how you sign up, you're going to get a link to our email newsletter, or you'll just have it delivered in your email. Um, so we're, we're, and you can actually text to subscribe as well, so we're, we've introduced that as well, because we know that you know people have a smartphone, they're usually texting, and they're usually emailing. We know that for sure, whether they're on social media or not, that that that's the question. Uh, so I'm curious, what is the email system you guys are using? We actually use Gub Delivery. So okay. we've had Gub Delivery. Golly, I've been here six or almost seven years. So we've had it probably six years now, um, and and it's been advantageous for us. Um, that is critical. In fact, we did a community survey, a national community survey, and what rose to the top was email and direct mail. And direct mail is incredibly expensive, but yeah. from a return on investment standpoint. Um, it yields dividends. So if you can even do a mailer annually, that's better than nothing. And you know you're going to reach people where they're at. Right. Yep. Yep. That's interesting. Uh, Gov Delivery is uh, so now owned by Granicus. Actually, I think Gov Delivery yeah. acquired or Gra Granicus acquired Gov Delivery at this point. One of our largest clients has been a avid Gov Delivery user for years and years, and I think they're pushing out a hundred plus email messages a month across their various email lists. It's just a huge source of community communication for them. Yeah, it's really inexpensive. Depend, you know, depending on the amount of number of emails you send out. So yeah. All right. Uh, so before we wrap up here, is there anything else you want to get off your chest or uh, or chat about? You know, the the only thing that I would say is this: is that um, when we think about communications, we talked about the the why behind needing communications, the pitfalls of having it. But I would say this: you know, when we think about communication, is that good and constant communication management acts as a proactive shield against events that might disrupt the normal functioning of your organization. But even aside from the disruption that could occur, um, people value the level of transparency um, and perspective that you provide. And through research, we found that people want to know the behind the scenes of our utility service, and therefore we are communicating the behind the scenes. So to the extent that you can do some public opinion polling to understand how you craft your messaging, what messages resonate, or what channels to use is vitally important. But I'm a true believer in government communications, um, have been since day one and today continue to be. So uh, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's today's report. My thanks to Maurice for joining us from the whole public CEO team and myself, writer Todd Smith. Thank you for your time. We hope you learned something new and inspiring that'll help you in your public service. Remember, Public CEO has a daily newsletter that is free to those who sign up at publicceo.com. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions for Public CEO Report, please email alex at publicceo.com.